All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Ask a Pastor, and I'm very happy to introduce our guest today, uh, Matt Plett from which church? Uh, Trinity Fellowship in Ildeshane, Manitoba. Ildeshane Fellowship. All right, and Riley is, is of course, back again. Um, very interesting topic today. I believe it's something that's really on Matt's heart, the law of God. So, Riley, why don't you uh, start us off with a word of prayer? Sounds good. Dear God, we thank you for this day. Uh, Lord, we thank you for uh, your grace and your kindness. Lord, we thank you for uh, the blessing of having revealed your will to us. Uh, Lord, we pray now that as we uh, open up this discussion, uh, that it would give grace to those who hear. Uh, may it enrich uh, our understanding. Um, and may we grow to love you more and, and to know uh, what it is to truly love you and to love our neighbors as revealed through your holy law. Uh, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <coughs> All right, so let's get right into it. Hopefully, none of you guys are wearing two different kinds of cloth today, so that we can all be brothers. <laughs> <laughs> what, what What are you talking about? <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> okay, so that's the softball, I guess. Um, a lot of people, when we talk about the law of God or, or being Christians, one of the first things that they say is, well, you can't do this or you can't do that because it's in Old Testament law. So right. I, we, even, and that's, that's relevant, right? Even as you start trying to talk about biblical sexuality, um, if you if you dare reference Leviticus, um, the very first thing, or one of the very first things you'll get back at you is, well, you're a hypocrite because you're forbidding this sexual sin while you're wearing a shirt made of two types of cloth, which is also forbidden in Leviticus. Um, you, you want to take a stab at, at answering that one just to kind of set up our discussion here? Yeah, so I remember a couple of years ago, first seeing this, we live in meme culture, um, which is interesting. <laughs> So I remember seeing a while back, and I think it actually originated from uh, an episode of The West Wing, mm-hmm. uh, where there was kind of this defeater argument, you know, well, you say that your Bible teaches that, uh, that you know, certain sexual practices are a sin. And is it not true? And, and he goes on and on, and I think it was, if I'm not mistaken, it was Martin Sheen. doesn't really matter, I guess, but uh, where he goes on and on, and, and it, it's basically, the whole clip is designed to embarrass Christians. Uh, and I think because of the, the lack of theological training um, in, in North American evangelical circles. I actually think for a lot of evangelicals, that was a, a, an uncomfortable mm-hmm. thing mm-hmm. to be confronted with that, right? Well, yeah, how do I answer that? Because I do touch a football, right? So I am touching the, the, the skin right. of a pig. And God's uh, law would say that and, make, and you un- right? make you unclean. That's right. right. Yeah. yeah, and so this was one of the things in that, uh, in that dialogue on the West Wing, uh, which worked its way into memes and so forth, and you see it all over social media, this is the defeater argument. Well, yeah. if, you're, if you're sowing two types of seed, if you're mixing fabrics, if you're eating se- uh, shellfish, uh, if you're playing football, you're touching a pig's skin, uh, and it, it kind of levels all these laws as though they're all on the same... Right. Basic uh, platform. Right. Um, and so, you know, th- this isn't a, a novel answer that we come up with for something like this under current times. Uh, it's It's been a historic distinction in certainly Protestant and evangelical theology, but really even prior, uh, to see there's different types of God's law. There's different things happening mm-hmm. uh, in that interaction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so historically, a division has been made uh, between those laws which were ceremonial, mm-hmm. such as dietary laws, dress laws, and so forth, uh, which are clearly terminated in Christ. Mm-hmm. These are typological laws uh, that are given to show us something about Christ's nature, about his purity, about his holiness, uh, and they are terminated in the New Testament. So an example of that would be 
all the dietary laws, you know, we read about Peter's white sheet vision in Acts, mm -hmm. uh, where God clearly says everything's clean to eat now. Right. Eat what you want. Um, and so clearly there's a discontinuity between the Old Testament dietary ceremonial law and uh, what we're, what the, the present reality post-Christ. Right, so you'd, you'd say when we get accused of, of picking and choosing, um, we're not actually picking and choosing, uh, we, are, we are forced into this position by what the New Testament actually says. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so, uh, exactly. This isn't, this isn't some kind of convenient workaround that we're going to pick the sins we like and the sins that we don't like. This is just trying to be biblical. Yeah. Uh, clearly, there's not dietary restrictions mm -hmm. on, uh, on Christians post-Christ. Yeah. Uh, and yet, we also know, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, I think 17... 18, 19, I preached it recently, I should remember. Uh, but in Matthew 5, I think 17 to 19, where he talks about not one jot or tittle of the law will be gone until heaven and earth pass away. Mm -hmm. Well, and depending on how you understand that, has heaven and earth passed away? No. Will it ever? Well, my understanding, probably what's happening there is no, it never will. Mm -hmm. Therefore, there's an eternal validity uh, to other aspects of God's law, i.e. his moral law. Right. So if adultery was wrong and lying was wrong in the Old Testament, nothing's changed in the New Testament. Right. It, it remains uh, morally right or morally wrong. So now we have a different kind of law that we're forced to say, well, no, clearly there's abiding validity here. God's moral law is eternal. It, it cannot be terminated. Right. And yet here we have this other track of ceremonial and typological laws. We don't offer blood sacrifices and, and so forth. That's clearly been terminated. And then there's another track of law. So typically we're, we're dealing with three types of law here. Uh, the moral law, uh, the ceremonial law, and lastly the civil law, which were laws that pertain to Israel as a nation state. Certain right. penalties, certain standards of justice and so forth. Yeah. Uh, and that's the, the trickier one. What, what carries over? How much continuity? Mm -hmm. How much discontinuity is there uh, between that civil form of law and our present reality? And I think mm -hmm. that's, that's one where the, probably the most discussion uh, should center around rather than just flattening this all that this mm -hmm. is all, it's all terminated or it's all fulfilled, right? You have the Hebrews roots guys. Well, it's all, it's all you know, even the, even the, the, the food laws carry on, or you have. Uh, probably more common kind of the unhitching your Old Testament approach where right. it's everything before the book of Matthew is is irrelevant other mm -hmm. than it's an interesting story. Yeah. It's Aesop's fables for Christians. Yeah. Yeah, well, and I, yeah, Colossians 2 is another text that comes to mind to just explain, right? Um, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or uh, <laughs> Sabbath, new moon, um, or, or a feast day, right? These are shadows but the substance belongs to Christ uh, types and shadows so what we see a distinction that that scripture itself holds for us between these different types of law so just to uh, as we talk about God's law that that I think is maybe one of the first stumbling blocks to get out of people's uh, way that uh, yeah not it's not that we have chosen this arbitrarily but that scripture itself makes these distinctions um, so why don't we get into a little bit um, some of the the civil law. So what what is the civil law? Did did you use the word civil or did I? I, I use the word civil. Yeah. yeah. So the the civil law or the judicial law. Um, what how how are we to understand that in relation to where we are now as Christians? Well, I would say the the idea that laws in society will come from God are inevitable. Mm -hmm. 
this is one of those, I think it was Rusus Rushton who talks about the, <coughs> the inescapable concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, that certain concepts are a witch, not a weather. Right. Right? So it's not a question of whether we will uh, have a certain moral lawgiver for society. Mm-hmm. That is inevitable. Uh, who is that moral lawgiver going to be? Right. Uh, is it the God of Scripture, uh, which is, a, I think, as Christians, what we want to be advocating for? Uh, is it humanism? Yeah. Right? Uh, and if humanism, who's humanism? Uh, is it the will of the people? Is Demos our God? Is 50% plus one our God? But it is inevitable uh, that we derive our, our laws in society from who our God is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as Christians, of course, we want to say that God's law is holy, God's law is perfect. That's uh, what we want uh, as the standard of justice. What higher standard of justice would there be than, than God himself? Right. Who knows better? How so are you suggesting that everybody has a God then? Are you suggesting that even people who would claim no God, my, my morality comes from within, that they would actually be putting somebody up onto that pedestal of God? Y- yes. Essentially, that's what I would be saying. Um, I think Romans 1 teaches that. Uh, that uh, man is incurably religious. Uh, every, every man has a God. Um, and I think the, the, the correct understanding of the teachings of Roman 1 is we all know that God exists. Right. The, the God of the Bible. Yeah. Right? When, when people are angry about God or when they're disproving God, uh, they're not talking about some tribal deity. No. What they have in mind, the God that they are self-consciously angry at, is the God of Scripture, yeah. the Christian God. Uh, and so it, it uh, I, I don't think, and this may be more of an apologetic task, but I, I do believe everyone has a knowledge of God. Mm-hmm. And this is why there's, there's the, the classic quip uh, about two rules of modern atheism. One, that God doesn't exist. Two, I'm extremely angry at him. Yeah. <laughs> we, 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 we hate this thing that's not there. Right. Um, so yes, um, and because Romans 1 teaches that turn in on ourselves, when we fall in love with ourselves, we worship the creation rather than the creator. So we find various other gods to serve at the altar. Of yeah, right. In our day, I think it's, it's frequently uh, materialism, you know, or, or humanism, or some kind of uh, false religion mm-hmm. that we serve, and that shows up in our laws. Our laws reflect who we serve. Right. right. Yeah, it's the, that concept there that at, at the center, whatever is your ultimate source of authority, whatever is giving the law for your society, that is functionally the god of that society. Correct. Yeah. That's right. That's yeah. what I would, yeah, that would be a fair summary. Mm-hmm. Um, so, as we as you're talking about um, God being the one who should be the source of our laws, and we talk about the Old Testament ceremonial law, um, are you saying then that every Christian needs to have a rooftop? or a fence around their eavesdrops, right? Because it says in in God's law that you shall have a, a roof or a fence around the edge of your roof. Um, so if you're saying that you need to, that we need to have God as the source of our law, um, do we need to go around enforcing that? Do we need a, a department of you know, rooftop fence ex- inspectors. Well, don't give anyone ideas. <laughs> <laughs> I can just see this going on the books next because week. Because <laughs> someone is busily creating that department right, right now. Uh, no, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, and I think that's not, that wouldn't be uh, typical of the historic understanding. So if, if the two softballs are God's moral law, clearly, c- clear continuity. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ceremonial law, clear discontinuity. Civil law, uh, a little trickier. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that the, the best way to understand that, and this is a confessional answer, and none of us are making this up on the seat of our pants, whether you're a you know, Westminster Presbyterian, whether you're a, you know, a, a second uh, London Baptist, like I would understand probably we are, mm-hmm. uh, the language that's typically used is the, is the word general equity. Mm-hmm. So what we're looking at, if we're looking at what are just weights and measures in our society, isn't just like a one-to-one where you can just you know, plug and play Right. Uh, just take the Old Testament civil law and just plug it in one to one, because the circumstances are different. People mm-hmm. live differently. We have different customs, uh, so it's not just a one to one transfer over. What we're looking for is the general equity. What's the principle behind this? Right. And so you give the example of a, of a railing around the rooftop. Well, what's the principle? Uh, in that time, in that culture, people would uh, to cool off after the heat of the day sit on their rooftop mm-hmm. and, and enjoy the, the outside. <clears throat> and a railing around the rooftop would keep people safe at another person's house. Yeah. Uh, and, and then there's attendant penalties for negligence, for not loving your neighbor well when he's at your house. So how might that look? Well, it might look like uh, perhaps you're liable uh, if if you don't put a fence around your swimming pool and someone's kid falls into the pool mm-hmm. or or you're leaving a big slick of ice out front and uh, you know someone's grandma comes and, and slips with her walker yeah. uh, it would be curbing that kind of negligence in our culture mm-hmm. right um, so you're looking at the general equity kind of the moral principle behind why would God have made this law for civil Israel for national Israel yeah. and how do we take that principle and apply it into our customs the way we live today. Yeah. yeah here's the, the quote from, from our shared confession, as I understand it. Um, the, uh, to Israel, uh, he also gave various judicial laws, uh, which ceased at the same time their nation ended. These laws no longer obligate anyone as part of that institution. I think that's a really important phrase. Um, only their general principles of justice. That's where we get that phrase, general and equity. And that's, that's the updated English. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The general yeah. equity, their general principles of justice continue to have moral value. But what I, what I think a lot of people miss in, the, in this discussion is um, how much value there actually is in those general principles. How many of those principles there are uh, to be pulled uh, from God's law. And maybe just to, to back up for a moment and talk about... Um, you know, should you know what we talk about unhitching from the Old Testament? Uh, we talk about just a general disdain in some cases for the concept of the law of God. Um, it, do we see that kind of attitude through the rest of the Bible, or, or what mm-hmm. is the attitude of the the biblical authors toward mm-hmm. God's law? That's a very good one, right? Um, and so you, you have you have statements like uh, you know Psalm uh, nineteen uh, seven to eleven. Mm-hmm. Where, where David writes, like, the, the law of the Lord is perfect, you know, sweeter than honey, drippings of the honeycomb. Uh, you know, by, your, by this law is your servant warned and keeping your laws, there's great reward. Um, Psalm 119, the entire thing, it's a, it's a big acrostic poem uh, about God's law. It's like a, a love letter, <laughs> basically, uh, extolling the goodness of God's law. He's got, like, I don't know how many synonyms for for law, for rule, for precept, for command, for instruction, and and it's just it's praising this. Um, oh, how I love your law! Um, or even in in the New Testament, Paul says the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Um, and I just think with the attitude that so many Christians have is 
they wouldn't be able to say that <laughs> with the psalmist about the law of God. Um, you get a lot more hate about the law than you do love, right? Mm-hmm. People look at it and they're like, oh, so it restricts me from doing this, it restricts me from doing this, it restricts... But they don't realize that in obedience to a lot of the the principles of the law is mm-hmm. where you find a lot of freedom. Yes, yeah. Um, and and we don't we don't value it, I think in large part, because we don't see uh, how these principles of justice are, are meant to play out in our lives. Right? You, you read something like a rooftop uh, fence, and you're thinking like, well, what is the point of that? And you just <laughs> skip right over it, move on. Um, and yeah, pitched roofs. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, it doesn't I, even make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Like I built a flat roof in Manitoba. <laughs> Haven't they heard of snow load? Yeah. My my eavesdrops wouldn't support a fence if I tried to screw one on there, right? Like yeah. yeah. Um, and so we just we skip right over it. But what what you what you find if you start to look into these things is that um, God intended for these laws to be expanded. Right. So he gives a he gives a command specifically about you know the fence. Uh, on your roof, um, but that principle is meant to apply to a variety of circumstances, right? When you're when you're making law, you would have options. You could you could attempt, as it seems like our society tries to do, uh, to make a specific precept against every single mm-hmm. case that you could ever imagine. Thou shalt not, and then fill in the blank with like a million different things, or you can do what God does, and that is give examples that contain principles that God's people are then meant to take and apply uh, to the rest of life. Um, And so I think when you take that perspective to the case laws, you can really start to see their value, that these are are beneficial, uh, really helpful things for for having us understand um, some of these principles of justice. And maybe just before we get into more of those again, kind of going out of order here, that's okay. uh, what, how, how would you answer the person who says that we don't need to care about God's law, we just need to love, right? Love God, love others. Um, that's, you know, that's what, that's what we need to care about. Uh, forget all that law keeping, forget anything caring about God's law, let's just love God and love others. How would you respond to that person? Right, so uh, love is an abiding principle, uh, but again, this is one of those... Uh, inescapable concept. Who gets to define love? Right. Right? We, we all believe in love, so again, we're at one of these crossroads. This is a weather, or pardon me, this is a witch, not a weather. Mm-hmm. Which definition of love? Uh, and I think a lot of people, and, and Christians get lured into this because uh, many unbelieving systems borrow our vocabulary, mm-hmm. and so they'll use a word like love, and the Christian who maybe isn't thinking real sharply about what's happening, or, or maybe hasn't ever been given the tools to think through this, they think, well, yeah, love's a Christian virtue, right? And it's even the most important, so they're, and they're talking about love, so I need to rush their way and find some common ground about love. Yeah. Uh, but love... Or justice. Or justice, and justice would be another one where that's frequently mm-hmm. redefined. Um, <clears throat> but I would just challenge a Christian, what's love? Mm-hmm. Who, who created love? What's the source of love? What's the origin of love? And then, most importantly, who gets to define love? Yeah. Uh, Jesus says in John, is it 14, 15 or 15, 14? Maybe one of you guys can correct me. Uh, where he says, if you're my friends, yeah. you will follow my commands. Yeah, 14, 15. If, if, 14, 15? Okay. There's a few of those that I always <laughs> say. Um, 
so there Jesus closely connects loving him, being his friend, mm-hmm. with keeping his commands. Yeah. Right? So Jesus is saying, I hold the keys to the definition of love. Right. Um, and actually, because of something else you had said, I just turned my Bible here to Romans 13, uh, and it fits with this here. Here we go again. Well as well. <laughs> Not those verses. <laughs> I'm a little further down. Uh, so Romans 13, starting in verse 8, says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Interesting. Mm-hmm. That is, yeah. Okay, interesting. There's a connection here between loving one another and fulfilling the law. Yeah. Verse 9, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so here, G- or, this isn't Jesus, this is Paul, now applying it and basically looking at the second table of the Ten Commandments and saying, this is how you love each other. Mm-hmm. And, and using God's law, as in this case God's moral law in the Ten Commandments, uh, as the standard. Yeah. Jesus himself says that on this all the law and prophets hang. Yeah. Right? Lo- love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. What is Jesus referring to is the first and second table of the law. Exactly. Right? What are the first four commandments is a picture of how we love God. Yeah. And the next six are a picture of how we love each other. And Paul is undergirding the, the theology both of Jesus and of Moses when he's saying this. Uh, they're summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, referring that to that. And then in verse 10 here it says, Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Mm-hmm. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Right. So love is a concept that's from God. God is love. God is love. He uh, is the origin of love. He is the source of love. He sends love into his creation. It's his concept, it, his rules. Mm-hmm. Right? So we can't then take some kind of humanist definition of love uh, and insert a new meaning into that word. And I think, I think a lot of people are, are gullible on this, but I do think a lot of the more sophisticated unbelievers know exactly what they're doing. Yeah. It's a bait and switch with vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And whoever controls the dictionary wins the argument. Yeah. As a general rule. Well, it's more than a general rule. That's how they win. That's, a rule. That, that's how they win, is controlling the dictionary. Yes. Uh, and so I would say don't, don't take the bait. We define love according to Scripture. And in Scripture, loving God and loving your neighbor is, is tied consistently to the law of right. God. So the bait and switch has only been something that's really been happening here in the last 50 years or so. Like People understood what the law was. People understood what the Ten Commandments were and how important they were to society up until very recently. So, yeah, the bait and switch is something that we as a society now have to contend with, which they wouldn't have had two years ago. That's right. And I think those of us who are in ministry have a real obligation to our people to explain how this game is played. Yeah. Show where the secret levers are. Mm-hmm. Right. Show show why the slot machine is rigged against you. <laughs> right. Uh, to explain this so that our people have some kind of apologetic tools mm-hmm. to take into these conversations that they don't say, yeah, I guess the law of God is unloving. It yeah. is oppressive. Right. But no, it's good. It's, it's a picture yeah. of love. So really quick, um, this is going to be small. We're talking about three different groups of laws. We have the moral law, we have ceremonial law, and then we have the... Um, what's the third one? So Similar law. judicial law? Yeah. Just ex- people might not know where they are. So we have the Ten Commandments, which is uh, moral, moral law. law. So yeah. that's a separate thing. The ceremonial law is where and how is it found? Like if people are saying, okay, where are these laws in the Bible? Where can I find them? Okay, so 
one of the challenges with this is is we don't have a book of the Old Testament called Moral Law, <laughs> right? <laughs> a book called Civil Law, and a book called uh, uh, Ceremonial Law. Right. So it's not so simple disentangling oh, okay. that. And so some of the some of those people who are suspicious of that threefold division will point to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it isn't so straightforward. It's not laid out like that. Uh, I think the way we gain wisdom in understanding what's happening in the Old Testament is to see how Jesus and the New Testament authors treat these various bodies of law. But a lot of the ceremonial laws, uh, you know, you look at a book like Deuteronomy and Leviticus where you have a lot, you know, you wear your hair like this and, and, here's, how to, and here's how to dress and here's how to... Uh, you know, after a woman's menstrual time, here's how long she has to wait to go to worship, and and if you touch a dead body, here's what's happening. Right? There's there's typological things right. yeah. happening in all of those that really do teach us. You know, touching a dead body has to do with death and resurrection, certain uncleanness. Right? Um, there, there's all kinds of things that that help us to see the 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 New Testament with fuller yeah. eyes. Um, but I think it requires wisdom in, and there's no shortcut to this. You have to just be saturated in your Bible to see the yeah. way the New Testament and the Old Testament yeah. treat one another. Just try, trying to look at how does the Bible as a whole categorize these various laws. That's that you're looking at what is, you know, the moral law we would say reflects the nature of God. That's right. And is therefore applicable at all times, in all places, <laughs> to all peoples. You've heard me say this. Throw time. Yeah. No, yeah. Um, <laughs> no exceptions. Right. The, the ceremonial law is these things where we, we have it from the New Testament where it says these are types and shadows, mm-hmm. but the substance belongs to Christ, right? So why do we have no more sacrifices of animals? Well, because Christ offered the once for all sacrifice of himself, right? Why do we have no more Aaronic priesthood? Um, well, because Christ is now our eternal great high priest. Don't need to keep replacing the priests who keep dying because <laughs> Christ <laughs> yeah. continues forever, Hebrews 7. Um, uh, why do we need no more uh, no more physical temple as the location of God's dwelling on earth? Uh, well, because Christ has um, purchased a people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and we are now the dwelling place of God Living on, stones on the earth, of that right? Temple. Yep. So, so it's like you have all those instructions around temple worship, uh, clean and unclean, Christ now cleansed us from the inside, which if you just take what, what the, the Bible as a whole says, you're left with, in some cases, no way to even obey some of these laws, right? You become ceremonially unclean. How are you going to go about getting yourself clean? Well, you have to go to the priest who doesn't exist. Who's not there? Yeah. You, you have to go sit outside the camp for till evening. That, like, that's well, not there. What yeah. camp, right? Yeah. So it's like you start to see. Well, these things were. Also, I can gain access to a temple that's not there. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. So you start to see, like, well, these are these are fulfilled in Christ. And I, I preached on this last Sunday yeah. that. Um, the time is coming when it's not going to be this mountain, that mountain. The temple was not going to matter, but uh, you'd worship in spirit and in truth. And the Messiah was coming to fulfill those types and shadows. So uh, that's where we draw that distinction. It's based on the, the Bible's own usage and categorization of those laws. Right. Um, but if you wanted to know where to find them in the Bible, we're primarily talking about the first five books. Yeah, it'd be primarily yeah. in the Pentateuch where you'd find all, really yeah. all five. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Or all five, all three types of law mm-hmm. right. intertwined with one another in the first five yeah. books. Yeah. Um, so, okay, you that was an interjection. Where were we before that? Where were we before that? Well, <laughs> we talked about redefining love. Right, yes. Yeah, so, so we're, you were saying basically love is a summary, right? Um, if you love one another, you have fulfilled the law. So 
here's here's the the big point then is if you want to know how to love God and how to love neighbor, where would you go? Well, my my answer, of course, would be God's law. Right. You you go to to that which it is summarizing. That's right. <laughs> um, and so yeah, I've got your duties to God, your duties to man, and really the the Ten Commandments summarize the rest of these laws. Uh, and I would argue these these case laws, these civil laws, um, are applications of the moral law in real life examples. Um, and and God, so God did not expect, or God did not um, want to give a detailed list of every conceivable scenario, but rather he gives us these principles um, uh, through these examples. And then we are meant to extract the principles from the case law and apply it in various situations. So I I just want to pique people's interest on this so that maybe the next time they're doing a read-through of Exodus or Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they'll maybe find more interest. So let's maybe look at, at some of those. We kind of touched on the rooftop fence law already. Um, how about something like uh, there's the law that if somebody's ox gores someone, uh, it says firstly that uh, they are not liable. Um, but it says if they were warned, if they knew that their ox was prone to gore, right, so that a violent animal that was had done this before, um, and that owner did not restrain it, and it then gored somebody, uh, it says they are actually liable even up to uh, the death penalty in that case. Any, what's, the, what's the principle there? Any application from something like that to our, our society? Well, lots of application. I think uh, something like this will, will kind of seem jarring to our sensibilities mm-hmm. uh, because we have moved uh, in our penology the way we punish crime. Well, we don't punish crime. <laughs> we rehabilitate now. So we have moved from a vision of punishing uh, wrongdoing to rehabilitating wrongdoers. And so I don't think in the, in the North American concept, and this is a relatively novel thing, um, you know, it's not long ago I was reading an essay by C.S. Lewis, which I think was written in the mid to late 40s. Uh, and he was talking about, uh, of course, at this time, it's just an academic exercise that the, you know, the, 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 that's being discussed in the ivory tower, so to speak. Maybe we should shift from penal law, right, punishing the wrongdoer, to preventative law or to rehabilitative law or restorative justice, isn't it? What they the call common it. parlance that, today. That sounds really good. It sounds really good. <laughs> uh, but he makes the case in his essay uh, that if we move to, if the goal is not just to punish the crime, but to fix the criminal, it's a short step from there to the ends justify the means. And what if, and this is Lewis being prophetic, not because he's got some kind of direct pipeline of revelation, but a guy like Lewis knew how to follow an argument. Uh, And so he saw, okay, this is just discussed at the ivory towers, but as Machen points out, what's today a a matter of academic speculation, tomorrow we'll start moving armies and tearing down empires. Uh, So he knew this is, if it's being discussed there, it's going to become popularized at some point. Mm Uh, and he said, what if, what if Christianity starts to be seen as a mental illness, and now we have to fix our patient? Hmm. What level of re-education, what level of perhaps even medication uh, will it take to fix our wrongdoer? Mm-hmm. Right? And, and even as Christians, we'd say, do we even want that for, for a criminal? Do we want someone... Uh, micromanaging somebody else's life because they've done something wrong. And I would say the biblical conception of justice has to do with restitution, Mm -hmm. with just weights and measures. 
So in the case of an ox, yeah, goring, uh, well, you're dealing with an ox. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a dairy farmer. Uh, I don't have bulls on the farm for this very reason is because I remember as a kid when my dad kept a bull uh, on the yard, they get violent, they get mean, they get ornery. Um, and so can this happen once to anyone? Yes. But once this has happened, is the owner now liable to calculate that in kind of his risk matrix of how his animal, how his property is going to impact his neighbors? Mm -hmm. uh, and if his animal, his property, uh, an extension of him, really, does, does damage to a neighbor's property, he's now on the hook for that. Right. Uh, and so the biblical vision is restitution. Mm -hmm. uh, if if my bull causes a thousand dollars of damage to to Kurt's yard, uh, a biblical conception of justice would say I owe Kurt a thousand dollars. You know something I'm responsible for did direct damage to you. Uh, I need to make that right with my neighbor. I need to love Kurt well by paying for the damages that I created. Um, move that to restorative justice or to our common way of dealing with penology, what happens? Well, I need to go to jail or I need to pay a fine to pay my debt to the state. Society, right? Or to the state. But here's the problem. My bull, my ox didn't gore, it didn't cause damage to society. Mm -hmm. I don't have a debt to society to pay. Mm -hmm. And if I pay a debt to society, that helps Kurt nothing. Right. Right? So I'm paying a price uh, to someone that I didn't offend and it, it, frankly, it helps nothing to the person I did offend. Right. right. So, right? so biblical law has the victim and, and the restoration of the victim of the crime as the primary focus. Right. There's, there's, there's restitution, yeah. which paves the way to reconciliation. Me and right. Kurt can meet each other again and be friends because yeah. this thing isn't hanging over us. Whereas a fine to the state or, or jail time, frankly, wouldn't... Yeah. Resolve anything for either of us. Well, and, and if it is if it is jail time, rather than you making things right with Kurt, you've now become a burden to all of society because of <laughs> right. tax Kurt's, dollars. <laughs> Kurt's paying for my meals and yeah, my, right. my my clothing. Yeah, yeah. so it, it 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 just it just compounds the injustice of it yeah. all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to to expand that that specific one that I asked there, like it, I, I think one of the principles in the in the goring ox as well is this idea that. Um, you are responsible for the knowledge that you have, right? That, that's, right? that's part of what determines liability. Um, you know, there's always a risk in working with animals, and just like you see, there's always a risk in every part of life, right? In order to live, you have to assume certain levels of risk. Uh, but I think one of the principles in, in that particular case is that if you have particular knowledge, it can, uh, it can make you liable if you don't act on it. That's right. So, right, if I'm going to borrow Kurt my truck, um, and I know, oh by the way, I didn't, I didn't get the wheel on tight enough. <laughs> um, if he goes out and the wheel goes flying off and he's, you know, crashes and is in an accident, um, if I knew about that loose wheel, I need to pay fully to see him restored, right? That I, there's the liability there based on the knowledge, right? So um, this is one of the these points. You see that principle of justice. Uh, in in that law, right? It's something that that should, and um, I think in, in many cases is. So I think we have some concept of this in our society, but but should be applied uh, to um, to modern situations. Um, and yeah, I, I like your focus there on on seeing restitution as the aim, seeing seeing the victim being restored, so that ultimately reconciliation can happen. Um, 
And, and, and just, I think you make a good point. Where our society has gone away from this, we see, we see less reconciliation, we see less peace. Um, no, that, that's really good. Um, yeah, one of the one of the things talking more about the just the value of God's law. One of the texts that really caught my attention um, was Deuteronomy four verse eight, where God actually calls for um, Israel to compare the law that He gave to the laws of the nations, right? And you, you catch this: God actually expects them to use the righteousness of the law as an apologetic to the nations, right? Uh, the text is, uh, what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Um, so let, let's maybe go into some of those other um, principles. So you, you mentioned the need to make restitution as something we see in God's law. Uh, what are some of the other principles that we ought to be pulling and applying to modern society um, that would be a real benefit to any nation that does? Well, I, I think one value is just the, the plain simplicity of it. Um, I think it was Chesterton who pointed out uh, from his own time in the late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, that if men will not be governed by the Ten Commandments, they will find themselves governed by the Ten Thousand Commandments. Right. Mm. Okay? Uh, and people think God's law is this big onerous burden. Yeah. Um, okay, and I've got a Bible with maps and footnotes and stuff, and it's about this thick. Mm-hmm. Now, I have been to uh, the library on Parliament Hill in Ottawa, and I can tell you, uh, our current federal law would never fit in, in this, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so I think Chesterton's warning is, is right. As we have abandoned God's law, as we have abandoned the Ten Commandments, we have not found freedom in simplicity. Mm-hmm. We have found ourselves uh, under the burden of the Ten Thousand Commandments, yeah. because frankly, we don't have a standard. Yeah. Right? And, and, and when we don't have a standard of what's good, what's true, what's beautiful, what's right, what's loving, uh, it becomes arbitrary. Yeah. And now you need a law to plug every little crack that could ever pop up, mm-hmm. rather than abiding principles uh, in the case law type of system. Right? And there's, there's different ways we do law today. You know, there's mm-hmm. common law, there's apodictic law, there's case law, and, and so forth. And, and different countries have different customs of how they, how they legislate, how they interpret laws and courts and so forth. <clears throat> but I, I think classically, the, certainly the, the Protestant vision that has come to the West, uh, countries like Canada, have been founded on basic simplicity. You have written law so that the law is king rather than that the king becomes the law. It's, a, it's an objective standard based generally on God's law. Uh, and, of course, there's always this reasonable test that gets tested in court, right? People try things before the courts. That that's the case law, mm-hmm. um, but there's a defined standard, right? Uh, and I think that's what's really missing today is a defined standard, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think consistency is coming. You know, if we say we followed humanist assumptions and, and so I belong to me, we're all a bunch of autonomous human beings. Uh, in that case, does something like abortion uh, or infanticide? or uh, made, does that make sense, given the assumptions of our culture? It does, but it's wicked. Yeah. And now you need all these little carve-outs. Well, here's an exception, here's an exception. Here. Right? And it, it, it becomes this giant beast. Think of the remarkable simplicity and the beauty of saying, no, no, every person doesn't belong to themselves. The beauty is we're made in the image of God. Yeah. So that six-month gestation baby is valuable in the sight of God. Mm-hmm. The 30-year-old, healthy, able-bodied man is made in the image of God. Yeah. 
the disabled child in a wheelchair is in the image of God, mm-hmm. uh, and the senior who's no longer contributing but has and has their crown of glory, is in the image of God. Yeah. It's remarkably simple. It, 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 it's true love. Yeah. Right. right. And I think you'd be hard-pressed to say our laws in Canada that get rid of expendable people because they're not contributing or they're inconvenient yeah. to me or they're a burden on the state. <clears throat> uh, I don't see how you can reconcile that with a biblical vision of love. Yeah, and this is one of those things that I think should make us a little bit angry when we see the double standard here where people would say that God's laws is backwards and old-fashioned and even barbaric in the things that it requires when <laughs> it is modern society that is slaughtering babies by the millions and in, old people in the womb <coughs> yeah. and and murdering old people it's like if we if we implemented the law of God we would not be killing our babies we would not be killing <laughs> our elderly <laughs> Um, and we wouldn't be killing even the people who society believes we would be killing. Right. They believe, oh, well, you presume that this person has committed this sin, kill him. Right. Whereas the law of God would have uh, protections in place for this person. Right. So that you couldn't kill them on presumption. Right. Yeah, and that's maybe another good good principle. You see, every every charge needs to be established upon the evidence of two or three witnesses. Right. That That is straight out of biblical law. Right. So, I mean, we talked about that a little bit before the show. Um you know, just to get into what you're saying there, Kurt, um, pe- people think that, well, if, you, if we try to, you know, you're saying every system has a God, and we're arguing that our God needs to be the triune God of Scripture. Um, well, if we, if we hold to his law, then we would be, you know, stoning people and, and burning them based on presumption of, of their sins. Um, and and I, I, that's actually not what would happen if you understand uh, the importance of due process in scripture, right? That every charge would be established upon the evidence of two or three witnesses, right? So something like one of the sexual sins that's mentioned that uh, there is the, the uh, um, that is a capital crime in, in the law of God. Um, how often are you going to have two or three witnesses witnessing that kind of event? It's like, well, um, only if it's done in public, <laughs> Right. And if it is done in public, then it was really done as an act of sedition. Right. Right, to, and in that case, I think, you know, suddenly the death penalty doesn't look so bad <laughs> for, for a public act of, of sedition, like public sex act. Right? Um, and, and so you don't have in, in biblical law, um, you know, people bursting down doors to find out the secret <laughs> sins that people are doing. If you go back to what you were saying, it, it's punitive. Right, it is. It is to punish. It's e- not preventative. Evil doers. It's yes. not preventative. That's an, that's an important point as well. Well, yeah. it's only preventative in so much as people fear the the punishment that that's right. come from it. Yeah. The, the penalty serves as a deterrent for sure. Right. Yeah. But um, you don't have a department of lustful thoughts. Right. Right. No. No Christian should want to advocate for that kind of preventative law. Yeah. Uh, and there's a whole discussion there. Are all should all sins be a crime? And I, I think no. Yeah, no, that's right. a very important distinction Not all sins should well. be a crime. Yeah. Uh, there are certain sins uh, that, that can't be tested, right? People uh, can't test the thoughts that are happening in my head, right? right. When Jesus yeah. says lust <clears throat> and anger, he, he targets those as, as the seeds of yeah. outward physical sins. So do I want a department of, uh, of lust or of anger policing people? No, I don't. But once that becomes an outward objective, visible, kind of verifiable action mm-hmm. on the basis of two or three witnesses uh, should murder 
be a crime. Well, yes, 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 it, it should be, and and it currently is inconsistently, but but it is. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I think That's still sad. as a reminder of of the type of thinking that built the Western world. Yeah, yeah. we are quickly tearing it down uh, as fast as we can, but there's still enough reminders. There's still enough stability yeah. in. Uh, in the inheritance we've had, that there's plenty of reminders that this whole thing was built on the principles we're discussing yeah. here today. This isn't a novel approach by any stretch. And even the the people who get really, really up in arms about um, the biblical penology for sexual sin. Um, so e- even if you're not tracking with us on on some of these things, um, I, I would I would challenge you to think of this: when you see very stiff penalties for something uh, prescribed by God, um, the question you ought to ask is, or basically you should not assume that God is overreacting, right? What you should assume is that he's protecting something important, right? The, the analogy I've used before, or I borrowed um, before, <laughs> um, is that if you saw somebody with a really, really expensive safe in their basement, like a big, high-tech, expensive safe, I mean, your first thought might be that they're super paranoid <laughs> and overreacting, <laughs> right. but you're, you'd likely wonder, wow, what are they protecting? They must have something extremely valuable that would cause them to have this big safe here. And I think in the same way, if, if we look at, if we ask that question, um, it changes our whole perspective on the, the penology of these, uh, uh, the, the penalties required for these sexual sins. So what is God protecting by having such stiff penalties against adultery and sexual sin and these kinds of things? Well, I think properly understood, uh, the most foundational unit of society is the marriage. It's yeah. the family, yeah. right? Adam and Eve, before there was a state, before there was a church, uh, and, and that's another interesting discussion, how many spheres of government are there, right? We, we hear the mm-hmm. word government, and we just think civil government, the state. Yeah. But there's plenty of other governments. There's self-government, right? There's self-control. There's the family government, mm-hmm. a husband and wife uh, raising a family together. There's church government with elders and so forth. But the most fundamental, the most basic building block for a society is marriage, husband and wife. Uh, That is the primary government. Uh, And so the sexual union, the one flesh union that happens there, is the glue that literally will build society. Mm -hmm. The command to be fruitful and multiply uh, goes beyond sex and and childbearing, but it certainly includes it. Uh, And that, because sex is powerful... Uh, I, I forget where I read it, but but someone said war happens because of sex. Right? <laughs> Men are on a drive. We're wired for a certain thing, and if it's disordered, it becomes destructive. Yeah. Um, and so I agree with the principle: never tear a fence down until you find out what it was there for in the first <laughs> yeah, place. Yeah, don't, right? don't move the ancient landmarks. Don't don't move the ancient landmarks. Um, and so sex is a powerful thing, mm-hmm. for good or for evil. Uh, in the bond of a covenant marriage, husband and wife working together to build a household economy, to raise children that are going to be good citizens, that are going to be contributing fruitful people, sex is the boiler room uh, of that bond. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's like fire. As long as it's in your wood stove, it's wonderful, it's warm, it's, it's inviting, it's, it's doing something positive. Uh, once it's on the carpet and rolling up the curtains, well, now that same thing is terribly destructive. Yeah. Uh, and, and God knows this because God made sex to be a potent thing. Yeah. Uh, and so that's why there are laws about adultery, yeah. about fornication, about sodomy, uh, and so forth. 
and again, I mean, to the modern listener, if you're you know a certain age or younger, all of us certainly have lived in an age of total sexual license and liberty yeah. in society. But what's remarkable is how novel this approach is. One of the one of the key themes that I try encouraging people, whether it's through teaching or preaching or conversation, is to think about history in a more proportionate form. Right? We tend to think history is the span of time I've been paying attention, <laughs> right? But really, from a historical standpoint, 50 or 100 years is a mist. I was born in 1979. <clears throat> Ten years before I was born, 1969, Canada had laws on the books. It was a federal crime to commit adultery or to engage in acts of sodomy. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's 10 years before I was born. This isn't... What's, what's novel, what should... What should shock us is that we don't protect <laughs> marriage uh, the way we ought to if we have a, a healthy view of what builds society yeah. and what tears society down. In broken families, sexual license uh, destroys society. Yeah. Marriage, childbearing, a family, builds uh, society. And so I think uh, regulations around sex make total sense yeah. and you, you bring up the point well two or three witnesses well how many people are you going to invite into your bedroom to watch this happen <laughs> uh, I think there's <clears throat> I think there's symbolic value uh, you know until 1869 uh, homosexual acts were a capital crime mm -hmm. in this country in Canada yeah 150 years ago uh, on the books it was a capital crime now there's no record of that ever having happened right and I think it was you pointed out to me, even in scripture, there's never a record that this happened. Because frankly, if this is in a private setting, who, who are the two or three witnesses going to be? Yeah. Um, well, in, in our society now, everybody's a witness. Well, okay, and you're, you're maybe talking about pornography with that comment? Yeah, and it, fair enough. Typically, uh, typically there wouldn't, it wouldn't be the type of thing that there is a witness, but to tie it to the pornography bit... <clears throat> there's a symbolic value. The law is a teacher, right? The law teaches us what's right and what's what's wrong to a degree. Yeah, well, and so more, more than people realize. More than people realize, yeah. right? Um, there's a symbolic value to saying adultery is uh, is a criminal act, even if there's really no real way to persecute it, because mm -hmm. there's a, it puts a stigma. On this, this says yeah. this is shameful. This is destructive. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In Canada, we don't live this way. In Canada, we're productive citizens who get married. Yeah. Right. Sex is good, and, and if you want to have sex, get married and, and stay faithful to your yeah. wife. It was, it was. I think it was Pierre Trudeau who said it. What happens in your bedroom is none of the government's business, and I think even none of society's business. But that is that is so far from the truth. That's absolutely right? not true. Because yeah. if if you are doing things in <laughs> in your bedroom with my wife, <laughs> that is absolutely my. It's business. a problem for society. Yes, yes. and yeah. and you've now just destroyed my family. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm sorry to pick on you, but it wasn't me. Like adultery destroys families. Yeah. Right. And now you know the you look at how the family was meant to function in society. Right, the role that God gave to the family to to bring up children, to educate them, to care for them, that burden just got moved from the family now to now that the family's been shattered to society. To society. Yep. It becomes a burden on everybody, and and you just look at the uh, the stats regarding fatherlessness and broken homes and everything from you know crime rates, 
you know, vandalism and, and it's, it's, a, it's a net negative for society. And, and it absolutely has a massive impact. Like you start to see God was protecting the foundational institution in society, right? There's, there's no, there's no um, a penalty for treason in God's law, right? Crime against the state, right? Well, we've basically just taken the family and replaced the, the family with the state as the foundational institution. And now we'll say, well, yeah, crime against the state. Well, that needs to be dealt with severely, but there's virtually no penalty at all for a crime against the family. Well, and interestingly, I remember I was about 18 years old. I think it happened in 97 or 98. The last law on the books in Canada that permitted capital punishment was treason. Hmm. So I have been alive That's while Canada me. still had uh, capital punishment on the books for treason. Yeah. But isn't it interesting that that law is there long after all these adultery and sodomy laws are taken off? What are, what's that teaching us? That's teaching us the state is the primary institution of yep. society, right? right? The, the, the order of the family, the cohesiveness of the family is, well, that's non-negotiable, right? That's, uh, that we could do away with in 1969, but it's going to take us 30 more years right. <laughs> to get rid of this really important one, which mm-hmm. is uh, the state is the primary institution. Yeah. So it, it's interesting, and I remember that one very vividly. I was a teenager, and I, I, I just thought, well, that's, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, that it, it, these things do have a ripple effect. They have societal effects. And, and so here would be just to maybe start moving towards closing us off here today, um, even as far as this idea. So just to maybe throw another challenge back at you here. Um, a lot of people will say, well, those, those laws, those were just for Israel, right? Um, and Israel was in special covenant with God. Um, and so, well, you can't try to say that Canada should try to follow these kind of sexual guidelines or these kinds of things because Canada is not in covenant with God the way that Israel was. How would you respond to that? Well, I would, uh, I would be happy to work with a certain amount of that premise. Um, in, I- Israel is truly unique mm-hmm. in a nation state in a sense that no other nation has been or, or can be right. uh, because of God's historical redemptive purposes for Israel. So I would, I would happily grant that. But uh, to then say that there's no abiding validity, well, why not? Uh, the moral law came to Moses, right? Uh, do we want to say, well, because we're, you know, we're not living in that certain time frame, that therefore the moral law is automatically out? Uh, and I, I'd say we, we wouldn't be happy to be so, especially because the New Testament affirms the, the goodness and the abiding validity of God's moral law. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and these civil laws, uh, again, it's not just a one-to-one, just take it out and plug it into Canada, that doesn't work. Uh, but the principles certainly do relate to the moral law, Yeah. right? Once we're talking about things like murder, mm-hmm. theft, perjury, these kinds of things that are destructive to society, well, what are we dealing with other than moral law? Yeah, application. Uh, and so this again then becomes a contest of gods. Mm-hmm. Whose gods will prevail? Yeah, yeah. and, and the, big, the big point I would ask people is, and do we want the blessing or the curses from the one true and living God? And this is, this is where I will take people in, is to Leviticus, where God makes his list of all the sins that all the pagans were doing in Canaan prior to bringing Israel there. And so there's like every sexual sin, there's bestiality, there's homosexuality, they're, they're sacrificing their children to Moloch. And he says, um, do, you will not make yourselves unclean in any of these ways 
uh, for so the nations that I'm driving out before you did, so that the land vomited them out. Right? Um, what covenant, what special covenant did God enter into with Canaan? Well, and that's, that's an important point, <laughs> yeah. right? Because clearly God holds nations and people accountable yeah. to obey his law, even though they're not Israel. They're not in that special exactly. covenant, but he's still holding them accountable yeah. to know that. And Romans does the same thing on the personal level, mm-hmm. right? Even the, even the Gentiles who don't have the law are the law to themselves. They yeah. know better because they're... they're they can't help but be made in the image of God. They are accountable to God's yeah. law. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that just so, so clearly puts that argument aside, right? It's like, well, no, those pagans never had any prophets sent to them that we have record of. Uh, there was no special covenant with them, and yet God judged them for their perversions, right? For their sins. So it says the land vomited them out. Um, we should not continue to celebrate those sins that made the land unclean so that it vomited those peoples out. Uh, I don't think you can do that and expect the blessing of God upon your nation. Um. <clears throat> and I would add, if we're going to say that Scripture doesn't, uh, doesn't have a word to speak as to what the, the, the laws of a nation ought to be, what the moral standards are, what will we replace it with? Yeah. It will be some variant of man's law. Yeah. But no Christian should be in the position to say, yes, Man's law is superior to God's law. Right. Right. And, and on the face of that, that's absurd. And I, I trust, I don't know any Christians who would say that. But when we're saying God's word uh, has nothing to say about what the laws of a nation should be, what the standard of good and evil are, yeah. uh, righteous and unrighteousness, clean and, and, and unclean, darkness and light, if God's word doesn't, isn't the final standard, the final court of appeal there, it will be some variant of man's law. Yeah. And the, the current mess we're in with secularism is we have moved, we have made that move, it is man's law, but we can't agree now be yeah. <laughs> between us yeah. which man's law should prevail. Yeah, if you understand the nature of man, you would not want man writing laws. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. One of the unique things about God's law, in particular the Ten Commandments, is if you look through them, even, even if we didn't believe in God's blessing or cursing for, for disobeying those laws, those are naturally, those are laws that are, would naturally find a resolution. Like if I found out that you murdered my, somebody from my family, then I would want to punish you. If I found out that you were committing adultery with my wife, I would want to punish you. Like they would be naturally occurring um, punishments. And God's just reinforcing them by putting them in his law and, and giving them, like, an actual uh, backing. Well, and to keep it from Hatfields and McCoy vigilante right. style yes. stuff, right? There's just weights and measures. Yeah. It's not up to you to avenge. Yeah. Right. right? It, Even proportional e- punishments, right? The eye right. law was a just one to actually limit the type of right. revenge that would be taken. Yeah, and, and, and I think people, and this is maybe important too, I don't know your audience, uh, if they'll understand this as being some kind of, you know, uh, saying that well, civil civil government is bad because it's being misused, and not at all. Right. Civil government is God's idea, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It's there so that there is somebody objective who can weigh the evidence, make a just judgment, and give a just punishment that's measured. Yeah. Whereas if it's you doing vigilante justice because <laughs> you think be. I killed your brother, <laughs> yeah. well. That's it. Might be it, yeah, it, yeah. It, It's not going to be an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. No, it's no, going to no. be a jaw for a tooth now, right? And this right. is how things escalate. This is how society moves into barbarianism and how it gets ugly. God's law restrains that and says, "No, no. Yeah. 
this needs to be measured. There needs to be a third party. We're going to work on the presumption of innocence. Yeah. We want stable society, due, not vigilante. Due process. Due process. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, that's all very good. Yeah, I think we're running out of time here, guys. Yeah. <laughs> this has yeah. been an amazing show. It's been a lot of fun. Mostly listening today because uh, <laughs> these two giant brains here, it's just <laughs> fun to hear what they are uh, coming up with. Uh, thanks so much for coming out uh, today, Matt. It was incredible having yeah, you Yeah, my here. pleasure. Uh, yep. And thanks for kind of running things today, Riley. Yeah, you, you, you did a fantastic job. Well, thanks. Uh, so, yeah, we look forward to seeing you guys again next week and uh, see, what, uh, see what next week holds. Have a good one.